And we welcome you to this special edition of the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. I'm Eric Lopez alongside Brian Murphy. We are both now at places we haven't been to that much in the last three to four days, Murph, and that's home, regular home. I, I, I was just getting used to having John Juliano Park <laughs> just be my permanent home. Well, it'll probably be later in the year. Uh, we'll be uh, this is a special edition. We're gonna coming up. We're gonna be breaking down baseball's opening weekend of the start of the 2020 season. What did we learn from this team after sweeping Siena in a four-game series? Plus, we'll recap softball's second weekend of the year and first 11 games in general off to the second best start in program history. What does that mean moving forward? Also, did we get to hear the angriest that Johnny Dawkins, head basketball coach, has ever been during his time as head basketball coach at UCF? Murph will give us the answer on that, and why is he so mad if he is? Uh, that and much more on this edition of the Black and Gold Banneret podcast. Of course, you could check us out on social media throughout, and of course, check us out our content at blackandgoldbanneret.com for all the latest in UCF as we break down all the sports. And of course, follow us on Twitter, and our favorite place there, UCF underscore Banneret, and like us on Facebook as well. All right, Murph, let's start with baseball. Of course, the season started Friday night. We've been waiting for it. We did the special baseball preview show last weekend. We didn't know what to expect with all these new faces, and at least the Knights sweep Siena. They uh, squeaked by a really uh, good first game on Friday night, 2-1, to one, a well-pitched ball game that went about two two hours and 25 minutes but then dominated the rest of the way on Saturday, sweeping the doubleheader and then winning on Sunday to wrap up the four-game sweep. Obviously, it's Siena, so we're, nobody's booking trips to Omaha just yet. But, uh, Murph, what is your, what's your take now from the first four games of the season? What's your big takeaway from this weekend? Yeah, I guess before we get into, you know, waxing poetic about how great UCF was, UCF baseball was this weekend, we should, we should off the top mention that this was – UCF has now won 20 consecutive games against Siena, and wow. they are 58 and four against them all time. So, uh, you know, so all of this probably needs to be viewed on a curve because it is Siena. Uh, but early returns are promising. Um, you know, I think you, you have to start with the pitching. You know, UCF, I, I believe, used 14 pitchers this weekend, and they only used one guy more than once. It was Billy McKay. Um, and, and so they, 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 they've talked a lot about how deep their pitching staff is and how deep and talented it is. And I think you saw a good amount of that. A lot of strikeouts, 58 strikeouts over the last four, uh, over the four games of the series. And also they struck out the last 13 men they faced on Sunday. That was Jackson Clare. Um, well, the last 13 outs were all strikeouts on Sunday. Jackson Clare's last 10 outs were strikeouts. And then McKay finished the ninth inning on Sunday with three Ks of his own. Um, offensively, fine. Kind of spread across the board. You know, it wasn't like someone had a great series. Uh, Jeffrey Pena was probably my player of the weekend. He went 5 for 13 at the plate. He scored four runs. He had a home run, um, which, again, for a guy like that, just to show the power, he had the home run today, Sunday. It's absolute no doubt to left field. It's a guy who just didn't exist last year. That power didn't exist in him. Uh, but, you know, Tom Jostin. Reached uh, reached base seven times during the doubleheader, and then you kind of like you, like I said, spread around. I think uh, Jordan Rathbone and Josh Crouch uh, each had four RBIs. Ben Rushing had four, four RBIs. Uh, he had a three-run home run uh, in one of the doubleheader games, you know. And then Andrew Brait and Matt Archer 
uh, each had three RBIs. So again, the offense was kind of balanced. No one really shined, but they all sort of did. They, everyone did their part. Uh, but it was really the pitching that stood out. If you're looking for marquee performances. I thought the Jeffrey Pena kind of lived up to the hype, right? I mean, we had Coach Lovelady on on the baseball special, and he talked glowingly. He's been talking glowingly, honestly, since you and I talked to him in fall ball at the end of fall ball, uh, going back to that uh, last game of the, Bla- uh, the Black and Gold Series, and we had him on in the fall, and he talked about Jeffrey Pena being the best player back then, and you mentioned what he did offensively, but maybe the play of the weekend, Murph, was his defensive play in that, what was it, the top of the eighth when he threw out the Siena base runner, at home plate sure from center field that preserved the lead that they would go on to win 2-1 to one there. Yeah, I mean, it really was the defensive play of the weekend, no doubt. Um, you know, it, it keeps the game in the ninth, in the ninth advantage. It was, you know, it was, uh, I believe it was one out or two out. I'm looking really quickly. One out, one out. Uh, it was one out. One out. Yeah, it was a base, yeah, it was a base hit to center uh, uh, with a man on second, a pinch runner on second, no less. And I will say, it was kind of shallow. The ball wasn't crushed, a line drive off the bat. Um, but you know, so, so Pena, but Pena charged on it really well, gathered it in center field. I definitely don't blame Sienna for sending the pinch runner Yasser Santana around in a situation like that where, where runs are hard to come by. Uh, but, but Pena made a, a fantastic throw. He thought initially that he had overshot the catcher, Josh Crouch, but the throw was right on the money and it beat Santana by five or six feet. It was absolutely fantastic. Uh, kept the Knights up by one. Then David Litchfield got the next guy to ground out. So, yeah, it was the play of the weekend. Also, I believe Pena stole three bases yes. or four bases. Three, three for weekend. three. Three for three this yeah. weekend. Yeah, and we knew he had that. We knew he's got that. I mean, that's really what we all knew about him last year. It's like, well, we know he can run because that's all he did. But now this entire series, you saw him steal bases. You saw him play the field really well. You saw him get on base for, no, matter, no matter how. You saw him just get on base regardless. You saw him muscle up for a homer. Um, he did everything. He really was, I think, the star of the weekend offensively. Yeah, he stole three of the team's 13 bases this weekend, Murph. 13 of 15 UCF stole bases uh, this weekend. And, you know, Coach Lovelady, that's what he wants to do. He, uh, you know, we talked so much about him, and, and we'll get into the pitching in a moment, about his philosophy, but he loves to steal bases and be aggressive on the base pads, and they were there 13 bases. Pena had three steals. Uh, even, uh, you know, you had Pablo Ruiz with a couple of steals, uh, Noah Orlando with three bases, Connor Allen with two bases. So they were aggressive in the base pads. And the other thing that impressed me was and you, all the different lineups and different options that they have. I mean, you saw Andrew Brake play it short with and Noah Orlando split time this weekend. Ben McCabe, mm-hmm. who had a really good weekend, hit 333, started him splitting time with Crouch at catching the position and the ball there. They got a lot of versatility and depth, and I don't know, did you get the sense there? I mean, Greg talked about that a lot in our when we had him on in our previous show, but he felt, re- I got a sense he felt really good about it, even when you guys talked to him in the postgame. Yeah, and you, kind of, and you saw it. I mean, not only what you just mentioned, but also Nick Romano, and Connor Allen splitting yeah. at first base, Jordan Rathbone and and Pablo Ruiz splitting in left field. Uh, they have versatility around the diamond. They can move guys different positions. You know, Tom Jostin played played second base, but he can really play around the infield. Um, and, and so, and I think what what is most promising to to Lovelady is that all those guys got playing time, and all of them did something. All of them didn't look completely overwhelmed by. The moment of playing D1 baseball for most of them for the first time, either as freshmen or JUCO transfers, 
uh, they they all had their moments where they were able to at least you know announce their presence. So despite you know more so than just having that having those guys around and thinking you have that versatility and that flexibility, it's good for them to go out and show it. And all of them did in some aspect this weekend. So it's promising, and and that and they produced a lot of runs with Dalton Wingo really non-factor this weekend, Murph. I think he went two for seventeen yeah, I, this weekend. Yeah, I wouldn't. I mean, again, I wouldn't read too much into that. Uh, it's Dalton Wingo. He'll be fine. I think if there's, there's one guy in this lineup that we know is going to hit at some point, it's him. Uh, so yeah, you can look at it that way. I, I will just say also, though, still, it is Siena. I mean, this is a team that UCF has not lost to since 2013. Uh, again, good to see, but we will see what this team is really made of, not only on Tuesday against Stetson. I don't want to go too far because we still have to talk about the pitching still. But going for, going forward with the with the opponents that are on the horizon, we'll learn a lot more about this offense than we did this weekend. Well, we knew coming in that the strength of this team was their depth and their pitching, and boy, that was uh, showcased. Again, I know it's Siena, but uh, as a staff only giving up a 1.75 ERA, uh, this weekend as a staff, striking out 58 batters in 36 innings, only 13 walks. I know maybe that's a little bit much, but still overpowering teams, only giving up a 191 average. So many fascinating storylines from this weekend in the staff. Colton Gordon, opening night, putting on a gem, 10 strikeouts in the game and a six and a third to get the win. You saw Hunter Patterson, their debut, the kid that was drafted in the 35th round by the Chicago Cubs. Uh, he was spectacular in his performance as well. Seven strikeouts in his win in five and a third innings. But perhaps the biggest story, Murph, maybe not just on for baseball this year, but one of the bigger stories in UCF athletics uh, this year when we look back at this 2019-2020 year potentially is the return of the sheriff, Joe Sheridan, who made his first start since 2018 on Sunday uh, and stepped on the mound after a real serious injury, which obviously you've documented and, and we'll discuss here. Yeah, I mean, it's been tw- it's been almost 21 months to the day of Joe Sheridan's last outing before today. Uh, you know, he underwent surgery on May on May 31st, 2018, to to uh, repair his uh, shoulder labrum in his left throwing shoulder, and it's been 626 days uh, from that date to today where Joe Sheridan got back on the mound, and uh, you know, he said it himself, and it's totally true. One, uh, you're right, Eric. This is the story of the weekend. I know Joe wasn't the best performer of the weekend. He didn't have the shiniest stats. But having him out there looking healthy, looking comfortable, throwing four decent innings, that mattered most. And it mattered most to Joe, too. So we got to talk to Joe after the game today. Everyone was clamoring because we get – we. I mean, Joe Sheridan, people forget, was the ace of this staff as a freshman when he was a freshman All-American in 2017. I, I can't understate for those who don't know how big it is that he's back uh, because he looked totally lost in 2018, could not throw a strike. We now know why. And then he spent almost two years trying to get back here, and here he is again. So certainly we want to talk to him after today's game, and we did. We caught up with Joe Sheridan, and we talked about four minutes about not only today but the journey, what his emotions were like, and he gave us a pretty good perspective of what this day meant for him. It was just kind of like a relief knowing that I was going to get the start and a lot of the game day preparation stuff like stretching out just felt weird to finally get back in that rhythm and just kind of like get into that routine again. But uh, warming up out in the outfield, 
just saw all the familiar faces and uh, whew, long running. All the people who kind of get helped me get through the whole process were here today, so it was a really good time. And uh, there's stuff to work on, obviously, but for the first time back, it was pretty good. How long did you have those nerves? More than just a start? I think it was about five minutes, and then I was out in the sun for five minutes, and then I was like, wow, I don't know if I miss Sundays. But uh, <laughs> no, nah, it was good. The first two pitches were kind of all over the place, but I settled in and started to feel comfortable again. Was it emotional for you just to kind of be out there and just remembering all the things you've gone through in the last two years to get back to this point? Yeah, I think it was just knowing uh, all the ups and downs I've been through and uh, just to get back on the mound today, the results could have been perfect or could have been terrible, but uh, just to get back on the mound was enough for me today and uh, did pretty well, had some ups, had some downs today, so uh, just still got stuff to work on now, but it's glad to be back. It speaks to the work that you've had to put in these last two years. Yeah, absolutely. It was a lot of work, and uh, now that all the work's done to be able to be healthy and be able to get back on the mound, now I can really start all the work to uh, be as successful as I used to be out there. So now the real work starts. <laughs> Did it feel good? That fourth inning was really your best inning, so to leave on that sort of high note, did that feel good? Yeah, I know. I started, finally got in a rhythm. I wanted to get back out there, but uh, first weekend, obviously, we all have pitch counts and stuff. So, uh, I mean, I was okay with it, and to end on a high note like that, I was hitting all my spots, mixing in all the pitches that inning, which I wasn't doing all the other innings, so uh, that was probably the best way to end it for today. So what do you want to work on now, going into another start? Uh, fastball command. The free bases, I hit the guy, tried to do some stuff early with the changeup hit the guy early, which led to a run, and then the two walks led to a run too. So uh, cutting down on free bases and knowing, I mean, I let up two hits in four innings. So if those guys aren't on base, two hits in four innings, they don't have a shot at scoring unless they hit it out of the park. So uh, just limiting the free bases and keeping the ball in the zone is something that's going to be really important for me. What did you think of Jack Sinclair's uh, performance following you? Yeah, Jack's gotten better. We've got, we've got a, that whole class, uh, Wingo, Jeff, and Jack have gotten way better every year. And the stuff that he's doing right now is really special. And uh, he's a great kid and super nice. Everyone loves him. So everyone loves to see him have success. You said the real work starts now. You've looked forward to this day for so long. But now that it's over, does it kind of feel good and you can move past it? Yeah, I know. It was like this whole build up to one day, 20 months, whatever it was, just to get back out there and do that one thing. So now that I can just be another one of the guys, nobody gets super pumped up to watch me pitch. It's all just about the team now not really about me so uh, I can just get back to working and try to help the team out as much as possible. What do you think about the pitching staff through the weekend? This is, a, this is a good staff so to be able to make it through four games and have a guy come out like Jackson Clare in a fourth game on a Sunday of a three-day weekend of four games uh, there's a lot of dudes on this staff right now and uh, getting out there on the mound is going to be competitive for all of us so it's really exciting. I think it's probably the best staff we've had since uh, my freshman year but the offense looks good too. The start nine and we had Guys switching in and out all over the place this weekend, and uh, there's a lot of talent here. You said you were up and down today, but did you, did you feel close to the Joe Sheridan of 2017? Yeah, I think I was competing a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, even in the, when they were scoring runs, I was making competitive pitches, and uh, that's kind of what my whole thing's about. I know there's going to be guys on base. I'm never going to blow guys away like a Jackson Clare was today, but uh, making pitches when I need to do that is kind of what I'm good at. So. Uh, there are some glimpses of that today, but hopefully it's something I can improve upon in the uh, later outings. So there's Joe Sheridan, who you know you can hear it there. I think as much as this as much as this day, this Sunday was about him. He is happy that this is gone uh, because he doesn't you know doesn't now require all this attention. Doesn't now require everyone to look at every single pitch he's throwing as if you know it needs to be studied under a microscope. We now know he's back. He's healthy. 
Uh, he will work out. He will work off the rust and work out the kinks. But now it's normal again, and that's the biggest part I think for Joe. Yeah, and I know Coach Lovelady was uh, happy for him and proud of him after the game. What do would you think of him overall? I mean, just being there. I know he struggled a little bit early, battled on, but really, you could argue his best inning was his last inning. And I would like to think that moving forward, now his confidence will only grow now that he's gotten over the hump at least and pitched right. Yeah, no, it just you, – you, you, he knew this day was coming, and he knew he had nerves and emotions attached to it. So just to get through this day with, with without getting, you know, absolutely shelled or suffering a re-injury somewhere, he got through it healthy. He pitched fine. That's what matters. You know, and now he's done with it. He can move on. I thought early on, uh, you know, his velocity is fine. His velocity is never going to blow you away. He sits at about somewhere between – 83 and 87 with his fastball. He worked a changeup into the low to mid-70s. Uh, that was fine. Well, the, the problem was his location wasn't great. He wasn't spotting particularly well. And then Sienna, give them credit, they were not chasing Joe's pitches down in the zone. They were not chasing the changeup. You know, Joe thrives on ground balls. That's where his bread is buttered. Uh, he didn't really get that today. Um, he really had to battle the first few innings. But like you said, Eric, uh, that last inning, the fourth inning, Totally clean for him. Struck out two guys, then got a little grounder back to the box. Uh, he said after that, you know, that's you know that he wished he could, he could have gone back out for the fifth. But with this being the first weekend of the season, all pitchers are understandably on pitch counts. He had thrown 84 pitches at that point. It was it was the right move to take him out of the game. Uh, and and again, there'll be there'll be better days for him ahead. But I think leaving on that note with his best inning right in his rearview mirror. I think that's that's a that's a good thing. For more on the Joe Sheridan story, uh, Murph had an ex- uh, a one-on-one interview with Joe Sheridan on Media Day, uh, UCF Media Day Baseball. You can catch that on our episode 199. Uh, we had Joe Sheridan on in, in that one-on-one interview. We aired that on episode 199. That's in our archives. You can check that out wherever you listen to our podcasts. Uh, certainly uh, go back. It's a fantastic interview. And really, uh, Joe opened up to you, Murph, of all the struggles and, and, and what he had to deal with for the last 21 months. So I certainly encourage people to, who don't know the full story uh, to go back into that episode and listen to that interview because – and I mean it. I mean, this is a significant story in a lot of ways for UCF athletes. You know, so much focus and, and understandably on Mackenzie Milton and his, you know, horrific injury and he's trying to come back. I mean, Joe Sheridan, some people wondered if his career would be done at this point. I'm sure there was doubts. And for him now to be back and not only that is – I asked, you know, I talked to Coach Lovely when we had him on last week in the season preview. He could pay big dividends here, of not just from an on-the-field standpoint, but being that kind of one of the leaders on that staff who's been through the ups and the downs for this young staff, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, like you said, he's been there. He's done this. I think the doubts – I don't know if I ever doubted – I will say this. I don't know if I ever doubted that Joe's career was, was, was going to end. You know, like we have, a lot of, we have lots of questions about McKenzie. There's a lot about we don't know about sure. McKenzie because right. no one is – very, I should say, very few people have ever come back to play at a high-level athletic sport through well after what McKenzie's gone through. Uh, you know, shoulder injuries, shoulder labrum tears happen. However, it's worth pointing out, and, and Joe mentions it in the interview, that he had some doubts. I mean, when he was coming back initially uh, after the surgery and, and was kind of cleared to start throwing again, he was topping out at 71 miles an hour. He, he had nothing in that arm. And and he just didn't know if it was going to come back, uh, you know. And so yeah, I think he did have a little maybe, maybe maybe doubts too strong, but 
he maybe wondered like, you know, oh no, maybe, maybe it never does come back. So yeah, that it is just part of his journey. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate Joe being very honest about really what seemed to him to be, you know, not only an injury, but kind of an existential crisis of a guy who you know, all he's done in his life and all he knows how to do and what he loves most is to pitch. And now he can't. And he doesn't know if he'll ever be that guy again. And Sunday today was the first step really where he could say to himself, OK, I'm close now to being the Joe Sheridan of 2017. No question about it. The question will be, what will be Sheridan's future in the staff? He started the Sunday game. It was the fourth game of the series. The first three starters, Murph, Colton Gordon, as we mentioned, the 10 strikeouts, six and a third innings, one of the best opening night starts ever. Trevor Holloway, uh, dominant five innings, nine strikeouts in his performance, only three hits allowed. And then Hunter Patterson going five and a third, as we mentioned, seven strikeouts, only allowing one run. What was your thoughts on the other three main starters? Because now the question moving forward for Coach Lovelady and Coach Adi and the staff is who's going to be your weekend rotation now, especially going into next weekend when you're going up to Auburn to take on the Auburn Tigers, who's nationally ranked. It's going to be fascinating how that rotation sets up. Well, it's a good problem to have, right? Because let's say, let's say one of your guys, if it's Patterson or Holloway or Gordon – I, I will say right off the bat, I think Gordon's locked in the Friday start. He proved it on Friday that he deserves it. So until something bad happens, he's the Friday starter. Holloway, I, I wasn't overly impressed. There were some command issues that sort of troubled him last year that I think you saw uh, on, on Saturday as well. But because of his experience, his knowledge of the program, and he had a good – and he had a quality start as well, uh, you know, he'll, he'll stay in the rotation – I think Sunday is kind of the question mark. Do you go with Patterson as a freshman at Auburn, or do you trust the experience of a Joe Sheridan? But let's say one of those guys gets lit up. Well, you have the other guy in the bullpen, and then if you if you know, and even if you didn't want to go to him right away, you could go to a guy like a, a Jackson Clare, who was absolutely lights out today against Siena, uh, struck out ten guys in four innings. You can go to a Jalen Whitehead who could give you two or three innings, a different kind of pitcher, a soft tosser, but they have lots of options. Plus, I mean, Zach Hunsaker, who didn't pitch this weekend because he's a little a little banged up, he could be back. He's a guy who can go four or five innings. They have lots of options, not only in the middle relief and in the games, but in the first six innings, if things go wrong, they have guys who can really cover the, cover the gaps. You mentioned St. Clair. He put on a show. Uh, you could argue he was one of them. I mean, what was it? Didn't he strike out like six, seven, or what was it, in a row there where he was just on fire striking guys out consecutively on his way yeah, to ten strikeouts? In fact, Lovelady in the postgame, and maybe I'm reading too much, and he said, hey, are we, maybe we got to reconsider some things there. Made it sound like, hey, you know, don't count St. Clair out as possibly being a starter down the road here either. He could possibly be. Maybe so as if it's just even as an opener, right? which Lovelady has certainly broached. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I mean, Jackson Clare today. So yeah, he did have a stretch where he struck out seven guys in consecutive order and he ended his outing by striking out 10 of the last 11 batters he faced. He, he's now up to 97, possibly 98 miles an hour, this fastball mixing in a, mixing in a, a low to mid 80 slider with some pretty good cut, uh, and, and a, a decent changeup that he kind of, you know, uh, trickles in here and there, but that fastball slider combination with that velocity and the movement on the slider, that's deadly in college baseball. And if he, if he can, Lovelady said it, and it's totally true. 
the fastball is fine, but if he can land that slider for strikes as he did today, keep it on the uh, keep it on the corners, he's going to be really, really dominant in college baseball because you just don't see that type of combination fastball slider combination with that kind of velocity in, at this at this level. I think the staff is as deep as it's advertised, right? I mean, he he told us. He felt fairly good, one to twelve from an arm standpoint. Murph, you got to see most of them. Do you, you like what you saw? Again, I know it's Sienna. I get it. It's Sienna, but quality arms are still quality arms, regardless of who you're facing, right? No, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't think you come. You don't come out of this series wondering about anybody. Well, okay. There's, so there is one person. Unfortunately, it, it's uh, probably Nolan Lepkowski. You know, he he. He's coming back from Tommy John surgery. He's about 12 months post Tommy John. They wanted to work him into, into a low leverage situation, and they did that in game two of the doubleheader where it was like a blowout, and he came in. He started out throwing 91-92, which is about expected. However, he quickly dropped off to about 86-87, and they quickly pulled him after two batters. I asked Love Lady after the game if there was something up with that. And he said that Lukoski had been dealing with some sort of leg issue and they didn't want to, you know, maybe he had aggravated it. So that's something to watch going forward. And maybe he, he needs some time off. Uh, Chad Lindsman really got hit around. The transfer from Nebraska got hit around a lot. Four runs in an inning uh, in the first game of the doubleheader. But I, I feel like, you know, we talk about guys like Billy McKay, Jeffrey Hakinson, David Litchfield, uh, Jack Sinclair, uh, you know, yeah, like I said, uh, Ryan Saltonstall. Uh, Ryan Saltonstall made his debut after missing most of last year with an injury. He looked fine. Uh, it's a deep bullpen, even if there are some question marks with a couple of guys. You know, UCF's got so many arms in that bullpen, and like we've said before many times, Greg Lovelady wants to win his games with the pitching, and specifically with the bullpen shortening games. And you mentioned it; he's going to get Zach Hunsinker. They hope later this week, right? To add to that. Yes, right. And so, and Hunsaker is a guy who can give you two innings. He can give you five innings. I mean, he's a, he's another versatile swingman reliever. It seems like they've got a handful of those guys. But I mean, that's great in this game. They have three. They have three out guys. I mean, a, a guy like Jeffrey Hagenson, you know, is a three out guy. David Litchfield went two innings this weekend. I thought that was kind of interesting, but he's mostly going to be an eighth inning guy. But most of their other relievers, the guys like Sinclair. Uh, even like Billy McKay, Hunsaker, those guys can give you multiple innings, and that is so valuable. No, it really is. So a great start for baseball, 4-0, and sweeping Siena, but it's obviously going to ranch up here. They got a midweek with Stetson Tuesday night at home before going on the road against nationally ranked Auburn, Murph, and that's one that's been circled. They played last year. Obviously, Auburn won two out of three here at John Juliano Park. They've got a talented team. They made it to the College World Series last year. They have one of the best pitchers in the country uh, in, in Burns, who's going to be possibly, as you mentioned, uh, we talked about in the preview show, a top 10 pick. I think that'll be a great. We'll learn a lot about this team and, and certainly the environment going into an Auburn, which is going to be, I'm sure, an SEC baseball stadium. It's going to be loud. It's going to be a good environment. I think a good uh, a good test for this young team and see where they add and where they need to improve on, right? Absolutely. And it should be noted, you know, we talked about the Auburn matchup quite a bit in our, our baseball exclusive podcast back a couple weeks ago. So if you want to hear more about that, you can certainly go listen to that podcast. But but now that we are past we're in the season, I should note that uh, that uh, Auburn did win or swept Illinois Chicago in a four game series this weekend. Uh, they kind of had some problems in the in the first game of the series. Tanner Burns 
actually gave three runs in five innings against Illinois Chicago. They, I mean, that is the that is the ace of their staff and one of the best pitchers in the nation. So uh be interesting to see what he does against the Knights next week. But he wasn't exactly unhittable uh, on Friday, and then then they, and then they were fine. They they blew the doors off uh, on the first game of Saturday, eighteen to one. They run ruled Illinois Chicago on Sunday, fourteen nothing. Uh, this Auburn team is fantastic. Yes, UCF looked great for most of this weekend against Siena, but I mean, you can't go on more opposite ends of the spectrum than going from Siena to Auburn, which UCF will go within the span of a week. Nah, it should be a lot of fun. And uh, check out UCFnights.com for all the details so you can follow that Auburn series. Maybe we'll get some SEC Network Plus online coverage of that. We'll see what happens with that. Coming up on this program, we're going to recap softball. Interest, what did we learn about them? They're 9-2, and two, sweeping the Knights Classic. They also hosted number one Washington since we spoke. We'll do, what, Murph will ask me what, uh, what my thoughts are on the softball team. Looking forward to seeing what Murph wants to know. But coming up, actually, we're going to go into Ben's basketball uh next interesting times with a UCF men's basketball they had won two of the last three games but certainly Thursday night against Wichita State was not pretty and one of the people that was not happy about it was the head coach Johnny Dawkins we'll discuss that next you're listening to the black and gold banneret podcast and welcome back to the black and gold banneret podcast I'm Eric Lopez alongside Brian Murphy Jeff is still uh Kind of recovering from an incredible weekend of his. Still on cloud nine from calling UCF baseball's win over Siena on Saturday night. I mean, we're happy for him, right? I mean, we think he's taking it a little too far by celebrating the whole weekend. But, hey, you know, good effort to everybody. He's his own, right? That's right. I mean, Jeffrey deserves it. It was a fantastic call on <laughs> uh, on Saturday. But uh, that's, what, that's what you meant, Eric, when you introduced this podcast as a special edition of the Black and Gold Banner podcast, it just meant there's no Jeff Sharon. I guess that means it's special. <laughs> so, or or so the fact that we're recording on a Sunday night. I mean, that's, yeah, that is that, that's that's very special. Special. You always record it Sunday night. It's always special. It's a, a special meaning. Nothing that was special about UCF men's basketball's performance on Thursday night at home. Uh, 19th losing to Wichita State, 75-58. Uh, was not pretty, uh, Murph. You were there, unfortunately. Um and it's, a for, it's unfortunate because UCF had won two in a row prior to that game. They beat East Carolina last Thursday uh, back on February 6th, 68-64. And then on February 9th in the space game, beat Tulsa. Big win there. We talked about Tulsa being at the top of the league. UCF won that 83-75. And you're thinking, hey, things are looking up and up. And then Wichita State's clunker uh, perform came in there. The Shockers dominated pretty much throughout. Uh and really, it was an upset Johnny Dawkins. I guess, Murph, the simple question is, what the heck happened? Everything went wrong. And it's amazing. Uh, you, know, you know, I watched that game against Wichita State, and I see a guy in uh, Eric Stevenson who just gets loose, a fantastic shooter who gets hot at a bad time. Yes, UCF had some bad defense. Yes, UCF had some bad shot selection. But I sort of watched that game live, and I was like, you know, hey, Stevenson's making some good shots. UCF could have played better. They didn't. And you almost felt like this was coming for Wichita State after they lost by 33 points in their previous game against Houston, and then they had a, they had a big team meeting. Well, Johnny Dawkins uh, was, was not as kind. And talking to Johnny after the game, who never raises his voice, he never is a coach who's going to get to the podium – 
and start ranting and raving and pounding the table and calling out guys by name. That's not his style. It never will be his style. If people are upset that he doesn't uh, show enough fire publicly, uh, sorry, I don't know what to tell you. Other than I have been told that Johnny certainly in private moments with the team and in the locker room in practice is much more of a yeller than he shows in public. So there's that. But you could tell after that Wichita State game that he was irritated at the very least. And it wasn't, again, his tone of voice was fine. But just the forcefulness and the and the point the point the point the point the guy oh I can't even talk the <laughs> pointed words the, the, it was just that he was the way he was talking you could tell that he was really po'd and I asked him that I said you seem the more the most frustrated you've seen after any game this season is this the most frustrating game of the year and he said yes it definitely is. And it was so many things that went wrong. They got out-rebounded by 17. And he basically called out the team's effort. Um, it should be noted that UCF got out-rebounded by 17 at Wichita State just a few weeks ago. Uh, so it's something about the Shockers and their effort just outclassing the Knights. The shot selection for UCF, we know the last two games they won. Uh, they, they hit a bunch of threes. And Johnny seemed to think that this team just got infatuated with shooting threes again. They thought all of a sudden that all they would do is just spot up. And he wouldn't call out names, but I'll go ahead and do it now because it's pretty obvious what he was talking about. You know, he's saying that, you know, a three is a good shot for some guys, but not for all guys. Well, he's talking about, obviously, it's good for Matt Milan. It's good for Darren Green. That's their game. But when Brandon Mahan, who I guess, you know, he is a shooter. But when Brandon Mahan comes down the floor and gets one pass and takes a shot like seven seconds into a shot clock and does it twice in the span of like two minutes at the start of the game, that's not good. When Avery Diggs, who I believe coming in was two for six on the year from three, attempted three from the top of the from the top of the arc, right as UCF is on a 10-0 run and ends up really halting that run in its tracks, that's bad. Ibrahim Fumuke Dumia took, I believe, one three. That's not good. Tony Johnson had a layup chance that got blocked. However, UCF got the rebound twice and feed it, feed it back out to Tony, who was open for another three. But even though it's open, I think there's better, uh, a, a, better uh, a decision to really set up the offense rather than shoot two quick threes, and that's what Tony did. Tony just took both rebounds, called for them, shot threes, missed both. UCF was awful shooting from the perimeter in the game. And, and, and so after all this, after the bad shooting, uh, the bad defense on Stevenson, the, the, the lack of effort on rebounding, at the very end, I believe it was it was Trey Stroko who asked, you know, what do you think causes all this at this juncture? And some and, and Johnny pointed to the, the leaders on the team, not not by name, but said the leadership. And he goes, I didn't think at this point in the season we would be having basically we would be having problems with leadership on this team. I mean, for Johnny Dawkins, that is scorched earth talk. I mean, you, you just don't hear that. So. Um, it's a, it was a it was a sobering night for UCF, which was feeling really good about itself after the last two games. But man, they crashed back to earth, and I can only imagine what their practice week has been like as they lead up to their next game. Yeah, obviously, I didn't see the game. I was in Clearwater covering uh, softball, and uh, you know that was certainly uh, I was listening on the way back from Clearwater. Certainly, sound good. Let me ask you this. Um, I brought this up to you. I think I don't remember if we've discussed this on the air, but I know we've talked about it off the air, especially when you were in Wichita. 
I don't feel this is a good matchup for UCF. Wichita State has, had, has, has won every meeting since they've joined the conference. But more importantly, they've scored over 70 points in every meeting, uh, including the first mm. meeting up at Wichita, which you were at in person. Uh, you know, I, I just – and I didn't have a good feeling. Wichita State was coming in, what, losers of three in a row, and Greg Marshall had kind of – had a uh, well, how would you describe it, Murph? A come to Jesus meeting I with his have, team. I have I've described it as a come to Jesus meeting. Right. So I come knew. To Jesus. So and Greg Marsh was one of the top coaches. So I knew they were going to come ready to play and prepared. Uh, so should we really be surprised by this? I I didn't have a good feeling going into this game. I personally don't think it's a good matchup. Do you not agree with me that this is a, not a good matchup for UCF? And, and if so, what what's your thoughts on that? The fact that really Wichita State is the one team in the league. Even when UCF in the in all these years have had success offensively against UCF, no, I, I'm not surprised at the result. I'm not surprised at the end result. Mm-hmm. I thought UCF was catching Wichita at a bad time, uh, even though they lost three. I, I just, you know, I know it. I know it's all narrative street stuff, but when you've got a practice that ends with basically a team sitting together for two hours, cursing and yelling at each other, co- and players cursing at coaches, and basically airing grievances and, and basically getting out all, all of the animosity that, that is held within the team. Uh, that's what Wichita State did. And that sort of clears the air. It becomes, it becomes cathartic and it sort of wakes everyone up. And so I'm not surprised that Wichita State came in here and won this game. I am surprised, however, at just so many facets in which UCF didn't perform well and Johnny, Johnny, Johnny Dawkins' reaction to it all afterward. And again, I go back to it. Calling out the leadership at the very end and saying it's disappointing. I think we'd we'd have more of this, meaning leadership, at this time of the season. At this time of the season with six games remaining, I would think there'd be some guys stepping up with leadership in that regard and holding guys accountable out there for what we want to have happen. I mean, for Johnny Dawkins again, he's basically I mean, he's I mean that that is that is whoa stuff. It really is. It's very it was caught me totally off guard, but uh, but uh, it it stands to this point. That this team is a, this team has a lack of leadership right now, and they need to figure that out fast uh, if they want to do anything over the rest of the season. And I think the only way you can really, you know, uh, work that out is by being honest with the guys on the team, sitting down, and and really hammering out, you know, what's expected of everybody. And if there if someone's got problems with someone, you got to talk about it because I feel like this team right now, or at least on that game against Wichita State. It was very disconnected. Guys were doing things that were totally out of the ordinary of what UCF wants to do. So there's a there's a disconnect somewhere, and, and something needs to be straightened out. Um, so we'll see how they react on uh, on Wednesday in Cincinnati. We will be able to talk to them. We will be able to, we will be able to talk to Johnny and and players on Tuesday. So I'll ask to see how the week has gone. But I'm <laughs> certainly interested to see how they respond from this. What's wild about this, Murph, is this takes place what four days. Uh, after arguably one of their better performances and their one of their best wins of the year when they beat Tulsa, who was playing well, and, and beat them at home, winning 83-75. You could argue it wasn't even that close. UCF missed some free throws, kind of let Tulsa back in. Uh, how do you kind of digest that? How The difference is in a matter of four days, you know, the Sunday game, Tulsa, UCF playing well, winning 83-75. Darren Green was on fire. Uh, had a phenomenal game. Uh, the young freshman, and you're feeling good about things, about the turnaround here in the second half of the, sca- of the year. I mean, Green scored a career-high 26 points in that game. 
and then three, four days follow it up with that performance against Wichita State. It, but, you know, it's just kind of a curious, sir, isn't it? It's very curious. It, it, it kind of smells like a team that felt like they had it figured out, you know, after two wins. And, again, this team, most of it is still young. But when things like this go wrong, that's when you need your your, your upperclassmen to stand up. And for this team, that's Matt Milan, that's Dazon Ingram, that's Colin Smith. They need to say something now. And I will say, Matt Milan in the postgame press conference uh, almost almost outwardly apologized in the press conference saying – it's just a really poor showing by us. The fans deserve better. The people that came before us deserve better. I mean, I mean, wow. they know. Not only not only did they miss the opportunity to beat a good team at home, extend their winning streak. Yeah, they they lost the game, but not only did they lose it, they've just played poorly in every aspect. So maybe this is a wake up call. I don't know, but but certainly the way they played, it almost seemed like they were getting too comfortable. They thought they were gonna just come in here and do what they had done, which is shoot shoot and make a lot of threes the last two games, which they did against DCU and Tulsa. But that's not this team's strength. I mean, there's a reason why they're still shooting 31% as a team from deep. It's because they're not great at shooting threes. A couple of guys are. Darren Green's been good. Matt Milan's been better of late again. But this team should not be shooting a ton of threes. Once again, it did, and it cost them. And I will say, it, you, you could see it in the playing time, though. You could see it with the way that Brandon Mahan, after he shot those two really quick, ill-advised threes early in the game, he played 90 seconds after halftime. I mean, Avery Diggs didn't play much. Uh, Dumbia didn't play much. I think that's that's a, that's a call to those guys saying, look, you got to play to your strengths. You can't just follow what we did in the last game and think that's going to carry over and all of a sudden think you're a three-point shooter too. I mean, I mean to think that, that Avery Diggs is shooting a three, it just can't happen. No, no. Uh, now they had an injury in the game, right? Caesar DeJesus had to leave the game. Right? Got what? Tell us what happened there for those that may have missed that. Right. So Caesar got hit in the eye in that game and uh, was feeling kind of blurry. Had some blurry vision. Uh, I don't know if he was feeling a little dizzy, but basically Johnny just said they didn't want to take any any risks with that. They wanted to be safe with him, so he he sat out the rest of the game in the second half. I, I don't know what his status is. Certainly, we will mention that when we talk to Johnny on Tuesday, maybe. Uh, I know Johnny has a radio uh, interview on Monday. Maybe he'll be that'll be that'll be a topic that is the radio show, then. the you know, coaches show, yeah, Burger yeah, you. the coaches show with uh, Mark Daniels. But if not, we'll we'll figure it out by Tuesday and see where Caesar's Caesar's at. But that's where that's what happened to him. It didn't sound in the moment. It didn't sound as if it was a serious injury. UCF will go on the road Wednesday night to take on first place Cincinnati. Yes, I said it. First place Cincinnati, Murph. A team that we were maybe laughing a little bit at during the non-conference year for some of their perplexing performances uh, this season. But all of a sudden, they are on top of the league. They're 10-3. and three. Uh, Now, they had to survive East Carolina winning in overtime on Sunday to preserve that first place. But they're ten and three, and a team on their first year head coach John Brannon, and this has been pretty remarkable. And you can make the argument, Murph, that we saw Cincinnati start to turn it around when they came to Orlando earlier this year and won the the game. Uh, they dominated Tulsa the game prior to the UCF game, where I think they won by forty some points. And then, they won by tw- yeah, twenty one. Twenty one. Okay. And then they come and beat UCF by fourteen on January eleventh. And they've taken off from that standpoint. What's been your thoughts on the Bearcats, who now have played themselves into a chance to win the conference championship and get back to the NCAA tournament 
uh, despite some of the questionable losses, in particular losing to Colgate at home in one of the more laughable losses where they fouled with – we've talked about it in nauseam about. Uh, but here they are. Uh, they lost to Valparaiso in the Virgin Islands, but right now they're on top of the league. No, and I should correct myself. They lost by 31, not 21. I can't add. It's been a long day, a long <laughs> week, and I apologize. Uh, but that was back in January. Yeah, I mean, since since January 16th, they've gone seven and they've gone uh, seven and one. I mean, uh, I, I, it's it's just a team that I think is playing up to its talent now. We knew when they were struggling early in the year, we were laughing at it for losing to Bowling Green and the the loss to Colgate and all that stuff. We knew that we, what was perplexing is that this team should not be this bad. I mean, even with a new coach. He still had the player of the year in Jaron Cumberland. They still had that really tough mindset. But I think you're seeing them play, just play better defensively. Uh, I will mention, though, interesting, I don't know if this comes back to haunt them later in the year, they've played three consecutive overtime games. They lost to UConn on the road uh, back in February, February 72-71 in overtime. Then the last two games, both wins against Memphis and ECU. Both those were in overtime as well. I wonder if some of that comes back to haunt them late in the year. They still have another game with with Houston. They have they have another game with Wichita State um, that maybe tires their legs out a little bit. But that's just me sort of speculating. Look, they're they're a very good team. We know they're a good defensive team. They've been a much better defense. They've been a much better offensive team this year under Coach Brandon. And so you know, we'll see what UCF does in that building. UCF played Cincinnati really well last year in that building. But of course, what does that mean now? Considering that no one, basically no one on the team is is still here, uh, but we'll see. I, I it's just it's um, I'm more interested. Even if UCF loses that game against Cincinnati, I'm just more interested to see what kind of energy they come out with, what their play is like, you know, how connected they are as a team, you know, things they didn't have against Wichita State. They're ten and three, seventeen and eight overall. Cincinnati tied for first with Houston, who lost at SMU over the weekend. Tulsa is right there at nine and three overall, seventeen and eight. SMU eight and four in conference, Wichita State seven and five, and then Memphis Merv, who has collapsed uh, uh, stunningly six and six in the league. They lose at UConn over the weekend here on Sunday. UConn, Dan Hurley is starting to turn things around over there. They're now quietly five and seven, 14 and 11 overall. UCF stands at four and eight, tied with South Florida. Currently, with East Carolina at four nine, and then Tulane at two and eleven. Murph, I know you're going to Fort Worth. Uh, for, that's where the men's conference championship is going to be held, and maybe it's a fitting place because there's a lot of questions. We don't know what to expect from the building at Fort Worth, and this might be one of the maybe the most unpredictable conference tournament in the American basketball short history, and maybe one of the most unpredictable ones throughout the entire country. Because can I, do you make any sense of any of this? No. No, no one can, nor should you try. We've learned basically every night that the AAC is in action that something weird is going to happen. I mean, I know Cincinnati survived, and that's great, but they were down by, I believe, seven at home to Memphis with about three minutes remaining, and then they really should have lost today to ECU. I mean, these are not – I mean, they win, you give them credit, but they should have lost these games. So even while we're singing their praises – uh, they're they are they are not without fault, and certainly you know Memphis. I, they've lost five of seven. It's really really bad right now. They've got more injuries with DJ Jeffries being out for the year, so that's too bad. Tulsa, do you believe in them? You know, I I don't think I do. I know they're a hard nosed team, but I don't think there's anything that you, there's not a, there's not a guy on that team where you say 
offensively, they're going to go win me a game. And and I think in tournament basketball, you need that. They don't have someone like that. I think Houston's still the best team, the, a really well-coached team, obviously, with Kelvin Sampson. They have a, you know, a bunch of good players, Quentin Grimes, Nate Hinton. Uh, but like I said, in this conference, you just never know. So if we, if we think we're going to see chalk next month, next month in uh, Dickey's Arena, it's probably not a good bet. If I said this following, I'm curious, your reaction to this following statement, if I think up to six teams in the league can win the conference tournament in Fort Worth, your response is what? I think we could have more than that. Whoa! I, I, if Connecticut gets – if well, I mean, so, so, okay, I think – okay, so let's just do this right now. Yeah. We can agree that the five that we, we will add in there or the put in there is Houston, Cincinnati, Tulsa, SMU, Wichita State. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. And then would your sixth team be Memphis or Connecticut? I put Memphis just because they still have that talent. If they could just put it together, right? They're capable uh, uh, play at the highest level for a week and win the tournament. So, yes, I include Memphis as my sixth team despite the issues that you have brought up. They are still talented enough. Heck, I remember a couple years ago in Orlando when they were decimated and Josh Pastner was the head coach and they made a run to the final. So, yes, I include Memphis on that, even though it doesn't look pretty at all right now. No, and I, so I'll say that I, I, I think I might believe more in Connecticut wow. than Memphis just because I, I don't trust Memphis anywhere away from home right now or really anywhere right now, whereas Connecticut has guards that can win games and – in college basketball, there's nothing more important than guards. I mean, really, and certainly in tournament basketball, that, that is doubly true. So they got guys like Christian Vital and, Al- and Alterique Gilbert who can win games in the backcourt, and I think that's important. So actually, I would give Connecticut a big, a better chance than Memphis uh, without maybe saying that Memphis, is it's impossible that they could win it because certainly Precious Achua could take over and, and win them four games in four days. So if you, if you set the line at six – I feel comfortable with that, but I would actually maybe lean closer to seven because at least Memphis might still have a chance, and we should not count out Connecticut because of their guard play. That's unbelievable. Uh, UCF currently tied for ninth uh, right now. And, of course, remember, what is it, Murph? The top four get a bye into the uh, quarterfinals? Uh, That's correct. The top four. So, right now, uh, you would have UCF kind of in an eight-nine situation. In fact, it could be UCF-USF <laughs> in Fort Worth. Uh, potentially. Again, it's still a lot of basketball to go, so we're not going to try to project standing. But it's, I, I think you're in for a wild ride in Fort Worth, Murph. I, I, I It could be pretty crazy uh, up there in Fort Worth. One tournament we know, conference tournament, we know where UConn has got, a, I think, a good chance to win is the women's version. <laughs> mm. uh, I like their chances on that one. I'm going to go on a limb and say there's not going to be six teams that have a shot to win the women's basketball tournament. Um, some would argue there's only one. But uh, one of the teams that's trying to move up in the standings is the Knights women's team who came in off a, a, a heavyweight, a defensive slugfest, uh, beating Cincinnati on Saturday at home 49-42. Not the most artistic basketball game. Uh, maybe setting the tone for what the men are going to bring on Wednesday because it's, it's not like UCF Cincinnati and the men's side have played artistic games either over the years. Uh, but a big win for Coach Abe and the Knights. They were down 11-4, to I think, after the first quarter, down 20-15 to at half, but come back and win it. And as a result, Murph, obviously UConn running away with the women's uh, the league once again. 
But you have Cincinnati, UCF, and USF all tied at 7-4 and four in the league, which sets up a huge showdown on Wednesday night at Addition Financial Arena with UCF hosting USF, the Warren I-4, nights one in Tampa earlier this year, trying to go for the sweep, which could be significant from tie-breaking purposes, also significant because UCF's got to go to UConn next weekend. Uh, and if you're a UCF, if you're USF and you're Cincinnati, what you're trying to do is trying to get to the two spot or the three spot so you can avoid Connecticut until the final of the of the American Conference Championship game at the Mohican up there in Connecticut. Um, neither one of us watched it, but that's a big win. This is a big two stretch here for Coach Abe and the Knights as they make a push, if not for the NCAA tournament, at least trying to make a push for the WNIT and get back in the postseason. And I think what's misleading about this game, well, not this game, but the uh, the U- UConn, U- so UConn played USF today. Yeah. And yeah, okay, so UConn won by, was it 19? They won, they won by 20, 67-47. People should know that, like, okay, well, yeah, they wiped the floor with them. No, they didn't. USF was was winning that game at halftime. I mean, U- USF was outplaying them badly in the, in the first half. They had more offensive rebounds than UConn in the first First half, then the fourth quarter happened, and UConn outscored them twenty-one to six. All this going, all this. I'm saying this because you know USF is 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 competing with UConn like that, similar to how UCF competed with UConn uh, not that long ago, the early this season. So uh, you know, US is it's a fantastic game. You said there's a lot riding on the line. That's certainly true, and they're facing a team in USF that at least for three quarters. Looked like they could knock off one of the best teams of all, one of the best programs of all time. It is, and and Jose Fernandez has done a great job at South Florida, uh, and so I'm not surprised. And you know, this is not the most dominant UConn team. I think that's been well established uh, on them that they're not the the dynamic teams of the years past when they were winning national titles and Final Fours and things like that. That game was played in Tampa, by the way. I will note that. South Florida still has to go to Connecticut later in the year. So does UCF this week. Keep that in mind. Uh, but let, let me. Here's another thing about the significance of this game on Wednesday night. Uh, going into this weekend, UCF quietly here, Murph, RPI up to 44 on the women's RPI. 44 in that RPI. South Florida is 63. Those are the second and third best RPIs in the American. Obviously, UConn number one. At seven, with Temple way back at 79. I mean, right now, if you're women's basketball, you're just kicking yourself, Murph, because of that loss at Temple late and at Tulane. That might haunt you. That might cost you the NCAA tournament, depending on how this plays out. But I really do think there's a chance the winner, uh, the loser of UCF-USF, on Wednesday night, maybe knocked out as far as having a chance to make the NCAA tournament and making the American a two-bid league. There's, I don't see a scenario where the league gets three bids this year, but that's how significant I think this game is, not to mention, obviously, the rivalry and the points with the War and I-4 uh, regardless. No, and and and, now, and another thing about what makes this win so important, if you win this game, obviously it gives you it puts you in the driver's seat there, and then you would assume you assume the loss at UConn, but the the rest of the regular season schedule is not that challenging. They have they have the rematch against Temple, yeah. but that's at home. They have Memphis, and they have Wichita State. I mean, these are these are pretty mediocre teams. Uh, and like you said, UConn not only faces UCF and USF again. UCF, UConn also faces Cincinnati and Tulane again. Tulane at yeah. seven and five. Yeah. 
So so all of those teams are probably going to suffer, you know, are, are going to drop a game at some point. It's about how you finish against the other teams. And for UCF, really the game this season is the next one. And, that's not, and I don't mean that like a cliche. If you win and beat USF, then you, you can you can kind of throw the game against Connecticut away because everyone else is going to lose Connecticut too right. and focus on your last three games, which are not at least challenging on paper. Right, and if you can get that two seed, that's going to look good too on the resume in the bubble and then make a run to the American final and play UConn tough that might squeak you into the tournament. We'll see. Lots of basketball between now and then, but it all begins Wednesday night, UCF, USF, 7 o'clock on ESPN3. Despina Barton will be calling that game with former Tennessee head coach uh, Holly Warwick will be calling that. And then the game will also be on the audio. You can listen to the audio ver- uh, broad- broadcast on UCF Knights TV 1 with this guy's voice that you're hearing right now. <laughs> How about that for a bad plug? Speaking of a plug, uh, coming up, UCF softball. What did we learn from the Knights' first 11 games? It's the second best start in program history. Can it, can it maintain that? That and much more as we wrap up this special edition of the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. And welcome back to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Eric Lopez alongside Brian Murphy. Jeff Sharon off on this episode, enjoying the uh, festivities, the uh, Valentine's weekend, and Daytona 500 being postponed, and calling UCF baseball wins. So it's all it's, it's just, enjoying the Daytona 500 being postponed. That's right. Who doesn't? Um, let's get into other stuff. UCF softball now playing a nine and two. Second best start program history. Only the 2015 Knights that started 10 and one uh, was better, and they ended up going 50 and nine. The Knights swept through the Knights Classic this weekend, beating Iowa State twice, beating them on Friday night four to three in nine innings. Run rolling them on Saturday nine to one. They beat Villanova on Saturday seven to three, and then they run rolled Florida Atlantic uh, with a nine a ten nothing win in five innings. Uh, to improve the 9-2. That's all bouncing back after the tough loss to number one-ranked Washington on Wednesday night, uh, 12-3 in, in, in that game. Uh, other notes of this game uh, of the weekend, Aaliyah White picked up her 70th career win on Friday night in relief in that Iowa State game, becoming the fourth night to get to the 70-win milestone. As she now joins Mackenzie Otis, Allison Keim, and Shelby Turnier in that mark. And then on Sunday, she picked up her 71st career win, tying her for third all-time with Allison Keim uh, in that mark. Mackenzie Otis second with 78, Shelby Turnier from 80. We'll hear from Aaliyah White in a little bit. Uh, Murph, but I'm excited. I'm excited, Murph. It's a good start. Uh, some good offense. Georgia Blair, a junior from Australia. Has four home runs already this season in the first 11 games. Hit three this weekend. The Knights as a team have hit 10 home runs uh, at 16 games. So a good start for Coach Ball Malone and the Knights here in the early season going. Uh, I know you haven't been able to follow as closely because you were next door at baseball, but I know you watched a little bit of Washington, and you're kind of curious about this team yourself. You've got some questions. Well, certainly. I mean, we know how much of a, of a, of a difficulty this team had scoring runs last year. You, you, you – uh, laid it out brilliantly throughout the season about how no matter what the pitching would do, they just couldn't score runs. And then this year, they've already had five games with at least eight runs scored. I believe they only had two such games with nine runs or more after March 1st of last year. So they're showing more offensive potential. You mentioned Georgia Blair. Who else is really sort of showing up and showing out in this early season portion? Well, it's such a deep team. And when we did the softball preview uh, a couple weeks ago, Coach Ball Malone talked about 
the depth and going to the bench, and, and she's using that big time. Uh, you look at a kid like Jules Wilson, Juliana Wilson, a freshman out of California, had a home run and four RBIs off the bench in the victory over Iowa State on Saturday night. She has power. Uh, Shannon Doherty, a freshman out of Coral Springs, Florida, who's won four state championships, has been solid as a pitch hitter and as a solid uh, starter in the middle of the lineup driving in runs. Uh, it's it, Jada Cody, a third baseman, a freshman starting at third. You know, we talked about Murph, all the new faces in baseball. Softball has 12 new faces themselves. So you just wondered how that would blend in overall with 25, 26 players on the roster. You've got, you know, Cody's new at third base. You got Georgia Blair, who's new, who's playing shortstop. Justine Molina, the transfer out of Boise State at second base. She's new. She's got 13 ribbies already this year. So it's coming from a lot of different places. And Coach Baumol wants to have a diverse offense where they don't depend on one thing. They can give you a little bit of a mixture, and we've seen that so far offensively with this team. And I think that's kind of the thing that's been exciting to see is all the different pieces that have stepped up offensively. Carissa Ornelas, you know, I, I asked question, the big question going in, who's going to be the catcher in the production you lose from a Cassidy Brewer? She's been tremendous with that you know, offensively and catching behind uh, defensively there. So I think that's the exciting thing, too. It's a lot of young faces, new faces, but they're young, and they've been producing uh, at a very good clip here so far in the first 11 games. That was fantastic stats, by the way, Murph. I didn't even know that. Uh, so that yeah. blew me away. That's pretty good. I didn't even know that. That tells you, though, it's a good, it's a good sign uh, that the offense, at least, and I know it's early, looks definitely better and improved from last year. No, they're certainly off to a good start. And You mentioned Leah White reaching her 70th victory milestone and getting her 71st this weekend as well. I mean, she's off to another fantastic start with a 2.15 ERA, uh, 34 strikeouts in 29 innings. What have you just seen from her? And, and, and this season, maybe contrasting her from last year where she was so dominant as well, what have you, what have you seen from Aaliyah? Well, I think I've seen uh, someone who has good command uh, and very poised and doesn't and knows that she doesn't have to carry the load. Uh, you've got a Brianna Vasquez who's, bright, who's back in her sophomore year who threw a gem and, and got the win against Iowa State on Saturday night. You've got G. Mancha, a transfer from Boise State. And again, Mancha and... Molina both played for Coach Ball Malone when she was the head coach at Boise State. They come over via the transfer, and G has been in relief and has started. So you got three strong starters now, Murph, all of a sudden. So if you're Leah White, you know you don't have to carry the load like she's had to for the majority of her career where she looked over her shoulder and it's like, ooh, I better be ready every game to pitch. That's not necessarily the case anymore, and I think she feels confident about the offense that she has and things like that. In fact, I talked to Aaliyah White on Sunday following the win against FAU where she picked up her 71st win, and she addressed your question, Murph, about how she's feeling it with not only the pitching staff she's got but the offense that she has behind her and as well as reaching that milestone in the 70-win club and 71, joining Ty and Allison Kime for third. Here's my chat with Aaliyah White following UCF's win over FAU. Well, Leah, perfect weekend for the team overall, going undefeated this week. And just talk about overall this weekend, very good, deep pitching and great offense. Yeah, I think this weekend um, we definitely did what we stuck to our plan, and we're very deep pitching-wise and hitting and actually everywhere. Um, and we really just stuck to our plan and did our thing. Talk about this offense going seven runs in the third inning. you got to wait for a while. It's a good problem to have all that runs, but you got to stay kind of in that rhythm. Talk about how you stayed in that rhythm and shut the door after the big inning. 
Um, I love when our offense gets seven runs and I have to, you know, get a little antsy in the dugout. Um, but I definitely just, every time we have two outs, I come in the bullpen and just do some spins just to keep my head in the game and my rhythm going and um, while our offense is just doing their work. Doing their thing. Talk about the staff. UG pitching, uh, getting wins as well as Bree getting the win over Saturday as well. Even Madison Davis coming in relief. This deep staff, the deepest you've had since you've been here, contributing all as a team here. Correct. This is the deepest, deepest staff that I've had since I've been here. Um, and I think we all give very different looks and we're unique in our own way. Um, and I think it's great that we all have a different energy as well. Um, they definitely keep me on my toes and keep me calm. And I think um, that we're going to be very successful the rest of the year. Does the seeing the offense contributing like they are this year, does that give the pitching staff even more confidence that, hey, we're going to get runs so we can even be more aggressive on, on the pitching-wise? Um, yeah, having the offense that we do is absolutely amazing. Um, it really allows us to stay calm and let our pitches work and let our defense work behind us. For you personally, this is your 71st career win. That ties you for third all-time with the Hall of Famer Allison Keim. Uh, just talk about that, 71 wins, getting that 70 win mark this weekend, a fourth pitcher ever to do it. I'm just super honored and thankful to be a part um, along with Allison Keim and Shelby and McKenzie. And um, can't wait to see what the rest of the season brings. Now you head out to Tampa. What do you take from this weekend moving forward to next weekend now as you go on the road for the first time this year? Um, for the first time on the road, I think we're ready and we're super excited and we're just got to stick to ourselves and keep believing in ourselves and doing what we know how to do and sticking to our plan each game. And that was Aaliyah White from Sunday, post-game following the FAU win. So you heard it right there, Murph, the confidence. You could just sense it. She feels good about the staff she has around her and the offense now producing. All of a sudden, the pitchers feel confident that, hey, we don't have to be perfect and try to win a one nothing game. We know that our offense can deliver, and that gives us a little bit more be, – be more aggressive and confident and attack hitters more. Right, and, and, and you know, it, it must be so comfortable, like you said, to, to know that you don't have to put everything on your shoulders. However, obviously there was one start for uh, Aaliyah that didn't go great. Uh, there's no shame in this, though. I mean, it's the number one team in the nation. Last week they played, they played Washington. The Huskies top ranked uh, right here at the UCF softball complex. Uh, and although, the, the, you know, the score looked lopsided. Washington won that game 12 to 3. Well, they scored five runs off Aaliyah in the second inning, and they scored seven runs in the seventh inning. But really, it was a 5 3 game going into that seventh inning. What did you see from the Knights against, at that point, was the best team in the country? The thing that jumped out at me that you mentioned, the five runs in the second inning, Morgan Flores, who's arguably the best catcher in college softball with the three-run homer off Aaliyah. She just didn't have her best stuff there. But they fought back in the game, and then offensively, goes back to the offense and the improvement. Juliana Wilson hit a two-run homer off the palm tree in the scoreboard off the two-time All-American Gabby Plain, who's going to be pitching for the Australian national team more than likely this summer in Tokyo. Uh, and they got back within 5-3 to three and had some chances to even add to that. So I like the fact that the offense had success against someone like Gabby Plain, who's one of the top pitchers in the country. And then, you know, it, things got out of hand in the seventh inning. A couple plays weren't made. And, Nick, you know, and when you do that against a team like Washington, it's going to get a little out of control, and that's what happened. And Washington scored some runs. G. Mancha kind of ran out of gas, who came in relief, did some good things there. Uh so it's a little misleading of a score. It is what it is. But it was really just two innings. And I think they that will be a positive for them moving forward, Murph, because as we know, look, 
the schedule is only going to get harder. Now, they're off to a good start. They've got two wins over Indiana out of the Big Ten, who I think is too young pitching-wise. Iowa State, they got a couple wins against the Big 12. Uh, they got win against Duke. So they've got oh, – that's a good start, but we still have – they're far from the meat of the order of the schedule. And it's going to start next weekend in Tampa when they play Tennessee, who's nationally ranked. They're also going to play FIU. That's not as big of a deal. But then they go to Florida State. In Tallahassee, Lonnie Alameda and the Knowles are a top-10 team. You just saw them, actually, uh, as we were uh, talking. They just uh, lost a heartbreaker to UCLA up in Clearwater. But they're a very talented yeah. ball club. And then, really, the big pointing, turning point will be in, in March when the UCF goes on the West Coast trip, and they're going to face UCLA, who you got to see, Murph, there in that t- on television there Sunday night where they beat Florida State. They're going to be the number one ranked team in the country this week. It might be the number one ranked team for a while uh, going into that weekend when UCF goes up there in California and plays UCLA. They got to play Michigan, who's the Big Ten champs. They got to play Minnesota. We documented that in our softball preview podcast, which you can listen to in our archives. So I still think we're going to learn more about this team really at that point. But I will say, I think they'll learn that that Washington game will help them be prepared for those games later on moving forward. And I do think they'll play with more confidence because they know they feel good about their offense. They feel they have the pitching staff. They're going to be deep enough. And I do think this team has improved from last year and will be a contender in the American. They, I'm just curious about how they handle the California trip and then going to Ole Miss. That'll tell us a lot about the 2020 Knights. Questions asked, questions answered. I mean, obviously, who else would I turn to for softball knowledge? <laughs> that's correct. Uh, that's myself here. Let's hear my, my conversation with Coach Ball Malone, uh, Coach Bear, as they call her, uh, and her thoughts from this weekend and moving forward to Tampa when they take on Tennessee. Well, Coach, you wrap up a perfect weekend with the win over FAU, go undefeated in the Knights Classic. Just talk about coming out Sunday aggressive and uh, taking care of business. Yeah, I think we got our momentum. Um, from the first game on Friday, rolling into today, uh, started feeling our bats more and played good defense, pitching. So it's a you know the c- complete game. Georgia Blair, another home run for her, three this weekend, and she's hit them to all sides of the field. Tremendous power. Just talk about her and what a talent. Not to mention a great defensive play on Friday night to help win the game against Iowa State. Oh, that was a fun one. Um, you know, Georgia's just she's an experienced player, a mature player. She makes in at bat adjustments, in game adjustments. Um, and she studies the game. So I've said it before, I feel like she's another coach on the team. And so she just has had the ability to play and the opportunity to play with so many great athletes and against so many great athletes. So she's definitely been a student of the game and it's paying off. You called Molly Rainey's number and she delivers a two-run homer, but just throw your bench as a whole. Jules Wilson uh, yeah. Saturday night with a homer and four RBIs off the bench. Your bench is becoming a weapon offensively, which is what you want, I know, part of your philosophy. Oh, absolutely. Our goal is to that one pitcher is not going to beat the entire lineup, and um, you know, having all those bats ready gives us a great opportunity. I mean, it, you don't know what the starting lineup is going to be that day. It's just matchups and who's on fire at that, at that time. and. Um, to have those those options off the bench is just awesome. Your pitching depth was kind of showcased this weekend. Brianna with a great win on Saturday against Iowa State. G coming in relief and starting this week and getting wins. And then Aliyah closing things down as a reliever and starting on Sunday. Talk about the depth of your staff. Yeah, well, I think the most important thing is they realize that they're a team within a team. And so they're playing for each other, pitching for each other, and understanding that we don't have to overpower people. We just can play our game and pitch our game. And so... It's going to be fun when they start to really get into I, – I still don't think we've seen any of their best yet, um, but I think we've seen some great performances. 
do you feel the pitching staff will also like kind of be even more confident knowing what the offense is producing, not knowing that they have to be perfect? Yeah, no, I, I think it's always fun to be able to pitch loose and confident and know um, that we can be aggressive in some situations and go after some hitters and um, know that our, you know, our lineup's got us. You're going on the road. First weekend now, Tampa. Next week at Tennessee and FIU. Just talk to the approach there now, going on the road away from the complex here, uh, the first time this year. Yeah, well, it'll be good. Um, we, we actually took a road trip in the fall, and we do that so it's not the first trip as a group. Um, but typically on the road, you know, we get them together. They're more focused. They're doing homework. They're, you know, staying together, and we're making sure they're going to sleep. And so, um, and they're eating good. So uh, we're just going to continue to keep playing our game, uh, you know, the the other opponent doesn't have a face or a name on the jersey. It's playing our best selves every day. That was Coach Bear. My conversation with her following the win against FAU on Sunday. Feeling good about the offense, the depth, Georgia Blair, and the pitching staff coming together as they'll get set to take on Tennessee. Now, I failed to mention this in the opening segment. We talked baseball earlier, Murph. Shame on me. But I'm, I'm going to bring it back and save it because Joe Girardi, okay, first of all, <laughs> was in Clearwater on Saturday supporting Northwestern softball because he is a Northwestern grad on Saturday. The Wildcats are a top 25 team. But then on Friday, we, as we learned, Murph, was at John Juliano Park, of all places, for the UCF opener. Yeah, he drove up from Clearwater. You know, he's just the manager of the Phillies right now, and their, their spring training home is in Clearwater. He drove up uh, Friday and came to see some UCF baseball mostly because – uh, uh, there the, he is close friends with the family of Matthew Archer, UCF's third baseman. Matt's dad is a longtime pro baseball scout, so that's how they know each other through baseball. And so, Joe Joe is up here uh, to to talk to Matt or talk to really uh, just to see Matt. He also talked to, with Coach Lovelady before the game on Friday. Uh, Coach Lovelady said you know it was nice to have him around, and also hope that uh, Joe wasn't too critical of anything he did managerially during the game, you know, kind of quipped about that. But, you know, hey, it's not every time you see a, a four-time World Series champion in John Juliana Park, I guess. That's pretty wild. <laughs> I mean, doesn't he have yeah. better things to do? I mean, he is the Philadelphia Phillies manager, yet he's just traveling all over the place. I mean, that's pretty wild. I mean, if you would have run into him at John Juliano Park, what, what would have been your first question to him? Uh, my question would have been the same question that he's going to get about 16 times this week in Phillies camp, which is, how do you feel about that 2017 ALCS now? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Would you still be the manager if the Houston Astros weren't caught stealing? Uh, cheating there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so that's pretty yeah. cool. Pretty cool story, though. Background story there with Joe Girardi. Let's go over some uh, other UCF sports before we wrap this up. UCF women's tennis continues to be on a roll. They beat UC Santa Barbara 4-1 to one, uh, over the weekend at uh, the USTA National Campus, and they beat Nebraska 4-0. Uh, they have, uh, are rolling, folks. They've won four in a row. They beat Texas A&M, who's in the top 20 last weekend. That women's tennis program, is it's a top 15, top 20 program, continues to roll. A pretty remarkable story what they've done over there uh, for them as they continue to uh, be on fire. And then men's tennis uh, played – over the uh, they they get they have time off actually they played last Sunday beat Illinois won at Illinois four to three they won't play again this is wild they don't play again until February 29th against Florida Atlantic uh, but they're ranked as well despite a tough schedule and four three record they are uh, playing very well I mean this is a busy time Murph we got all sports going on here tennis golf is now underway 
I mean, softball, baseball, basketball still got some games to go on. I mean, uh, you know, it's the springtime. I mean, who's to say? I mean, there's a ton of stuff going on. Track and field is going That got through. started. Oh, yes, they got started. That's a great point, Merv. Look at you, bringing the track into the equation. They did get started this weekend. Uh, let's see how they did. They were uh, up and on the road. I know that. So that's a – They're up in they're up in Clemson, I believe. Yeah, they're up in uh, Clemson, South Carolina. Wow. Yeah, they did, and they uh, closed it out with a, really some great individual performances there. So they're starting out the year there. So it's a lot of time. We were going to be covering this all year before you know it. You got, you know, golf, tennis. Those are programs that are expected to win championships. And then rowing will get going. So it's uh, it's it. It's funny. People, Some people think it's a slow time of year because there's no football. And then, of course, spring practice will get going probably sooner than later. But there's so many sports. There's more sports going on in the spring now than there usually is in the fall, which makes it even, I think, a more busier time. Yeah, and and let's and let's close with this, Eric. Yes. UCF UCF football. We have to mention it in this show. UCF football. We we should have some news. You're listening to this probably on Monday morning. I hope Jeffrey, if you get this up in time, uh, <laughs> that uh, the schedule for UCF football's 2020 season should be released. So I hear either Monday or Tuesday of this week. So we will know basically when. Uh, and 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 where are you? And, and are you teasing? Are you going to tease a Murph bomb here? Are you teasing a Murph bomb this week? Oh, no, no, no. Okay. I am teasing a release by the AAC. <laughs> I am teasing a release by the American Athletic Conference, which should come out, uh, you know, either Monday or Tuesday of this week. So we should know some some game times and certainly dates and locations. So uh, th- that'll be on the horizon as well. So we've got that to worry about, and then. Spring football is not too far away. Actually, it'll be starting later this month. We don't exactly have a, a timetable for how long it'll go or for us that's important, the availabilities, but uh, we have heard that it will be starting on February 28th. So, I mean, spring football is this month. Very good. Very good. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's going to get even crazier. Wild times going on there. Uh, Murph. All right, Murph, tell the audience what you got, uh, wor- where you're working on. I know you've got some family business to take care of this week, so we won't hear from you later this week, but uh, that doesn't mean you're going to stop working. So what you got going on? No, I'll be around. Uh, I certainly do hope to make it out to the baseball game on Tuesday night versus Stetson. That game's at 6th at John Yonah Park. It kind of depends on, on everything else in my life, how that goes. But uh, before that, I'll be talking to Johnny Dawkins Tuesday morning, Tuesday early afternoon about the week that's been for the team, uh, see if there's anything coming out of that. Uh, and then I'll be back this weekend to go to the Tulane game, UCF men's basketball facing Tulane uh, on Saturday. Uh, between then and now, I, tr- I will hope to get an article up soon before the next game on Wednesday for basketball about how UCF, need- how UCF basketball needs to sort of copy Wichita State and have its own come-to-Jesus meeting now. And uh, maybe maybe this is something I won't come out this week, but – uh, pretty shortly, I will have something on Joe Sheridan, a longer piece about his journey over the last almost uh, two years from, uh, from basically thinking he was not a good pitcher anymore, who couldn't find the strike zone, to uh, then going under surgery, and now he's back. So I'll have a, I'll have a piece on that uh, in short order. Yeah, that's going to be uh, really good stuff, Joe. Really happy for Joe there. Uh, indeed. By the way, I will ask this question since it was asked on social media while we were recording this. Uh, I know th- this might surprise you, Murph. It's Sam Unger with a question. It's not a baseball question. Not a baseball question. Oh, my God. 
Unger to Unger asking, can Aaliyah White break the wins record this year? The answer is yes. I hope, I hope if she's healthy, more than likely she will. She's at 71 wins. Shelby Turnier is at 80. Uh, Mackenzie Otis is at 78. Allison Kime is at 71. She would be on pace to break. It won't be as easy maybe as we would think because we have so much depth, so it's a good problem to have. So uh, I'm going to answer your question now since you asked the question. But I'm, Murph, I may have stolen him from you. He's he's a softball guy now. I mean, he's why he's still following baseball, but he's he's a softball baseball. This is going to be one of his favorite podcast episodes, I think, because of the softball baseball oh, talk. Certainly, uh, Sam is is still checking in. You know, making sure that uh, that uh, Joe Sheridan has good velocity. I saw that today, okay. uh, to which I said it's fine, and uh, he's still tuning in. I know, Sam. I, I know you're around. You're never that far away from UCF baseball. Well, it's a lot easier now. You know, you got the UCF Knights uh, softball baseball on for free. It's on Twitch, you know, so it's easier for guys like Sam to follow it. It's so much better, too. For those who haven't watched a UCF softball or uh, baseball game yet on Twitch, I mean, it's so much better. I never would listen to or watch a game on the UCF Knights TV last year, and I'm now listening to into the broadcast of – of every baseball game because it, it's so easy to it's it's so accessible and the stream is pretty consistent. We did have an issue on Friday where I believe one of the servers died during one of the baseball games, which caused the stream to drop out for a couple of innings. But it was great all weekend long. I mean, either if you're watching uh, UCF nights one or two, both streams are really really quality. Uh, you know, so I, I love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah, it's been really. Uh, they do a great job. The video t- people do do a great job. The graphics are fantastic. Uh, it's just an awesome work there by a lot of people behind the scenes. There are too many to mention here, uh, but certainly I've been very fortunate to do work with Eric Softball. Uh, we had over 1,000 people tuned in for the Washington game on Wednesday. It was a monster number there. Uh, yeah. But it was cool to have baseball and softball. Like I spent most of the weekend while I was at softball having the baseball game on, and uh, that was pretty fun, although I, I did mute Jeff uh, when he was on. Not because any negative, you know, just, I mean, you know. I mean, I hear him enough, you know, doing this podcast. I mean, for me, anyway. You know what I mean? It's, I'm sure True, it's – No, that's – You know, it's, I got to tell Like I said, that's, that's what makes this podcast special. There's, there's no <laughs> there's no Jeff. But how, about the fact, how about the fact, Eric, that we are maybe like an hour and 45 minutes into taping? If this was a Jeff podcast, this was easily a two-and-a-half-hour show. We have, we have picked the pace up on this. I podcast. like to go up-tempo. I like to go up-tempo and uh, – Push it, and uh, you know it'll be good. So you know, I like to go speed and uh, not to uh, drag it on there, and we just flow with it, baby. We'll flow with it. So we may do another podcast later this week. It might be me and Jeff. We'll see. We'll see how the week develops. Uh, Murph teasing maybe some big news. We'll see. Hey, uh, you never know. <laughs> Football schedule, baby. <laughs> hey, we gotta talk about that uh, and that and much more. Uh, follow us again. Uh, Murph, you mentioned where he were, you could follow him. You could follow us at UCF underscore Banneret. You could follow me at Eric Lopez Elo. Feel free to ask questions throughout uh, the week on social media. And in fact, you have questions, especially if you have questions for Murph, we'll ask him on the air, on the podcast. If you have questions for me, we'll address that on the podcast. So uh, a lot of fun there. Uh, it's here, but it's exciting. The baseball season's underway, softball going on. And so we figured we'd do this special podcast to kind of recap all of that because we haven't done one of these in, a, in about a little while so, other than the baseball preview show. So Murph, this was fun. This was enjoyable. I feel this was a very high quality uh, WrestleMania quality show. 
this was a great show, and I look forward to Jeffrey listening to this now as he's editing it and and realizing how much we just trashed we him. We buried him. Said, we buried him like wrestlers bury each other in promos. Oh, it's just yeah. tremendous. We, we had to get a wrestling uh, wrestling uh, uh, hit in there, so I'm glad you mentioned that at the very end because this show isn't without isn't good without its wrestling mentions because it really, really, really makes Jeff mad, and that's that's the best part. Yes, that's why we're doing it. Wait until the weekend yeah. of the baseball series against Wichita State. What are we going to – and it's WrestleMania weekend, Murph. I mean, that's – Oh, my God. Woo! Oh, it's going to be tough. I mean, I, I, I'm going to – I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it, but uh, that might be a tricky weekend for me. It could be a tricky for a lot of us. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Tricky. It'll be tricky for Greg Lovelady. <laughs> we may have to address that with him as we get closer to that, depending on how the year goes. Uh, we'll see how that goes yeah. uh, on that. But uh, that'll do it for this edition of the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. For Brian Murphy, I'm Eric Lopez. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Black and Gold Banneret.